0: This is What's Next In with Phil and Leora, a podcast about
1: what is changing and how we can be ahead of it.
0: Join us as we test each other's perspectives and explore new ideas through science and behavior.
1: Today on the pod, we have David Fanner, who has a superpower of understanding how to influence behavior.
0: David is an expert in applied behavioral science, and he currently works at Ogilvy Consulting, one of the world's premier behavioral science firms. Hmm, I'm intrigued. Let's chat.
1: All right. So today on the pod, we have David Fanner. David, we want to know all about you and your amazing work and your life. But as you know, the first question we always ask is, can you tell us what your name means? that's a nice question
2: actually um and it's very much rooted in what um Dale Carnegie says with this book um how to win friends and influence people which is um <laughs> always mention people's names um people love that if you can't get something through just ask them to name it after them and they'll love it so that's, that's brilliant <laughs> go love it um but I think I think David actually means beloved which mm-hmm. I think may be biblical um but I did look into Fanna a few years ago and it actually means a winnower who's a farmer, I think, who separates the wheat from the chaff, basically, oh. um, which was interesting. But what I found was more interesting was they were often tall people, and I'm quite <laughs> tall. But the fact that some website, which just knows my surname, sort of knew my genealogy and they're quite hairy as well, like, I just thought, like, that was really interesting. Different from the name, potentially this could be passed down for generations. So, beloved farmer, I guess. I love it.
0: That's awesome. <laughs> that is so, so fascinating. And it's funny how they actually even know that you're tall. Now, I think something else that is interesting that I want to kind of jump into is a little bit about not just your background of your name, but the background of where you're from. Can you share a little bit about that?
2: Sure. Um, yeah. So I was actually born in Zimbabwe um, in Africa, Southern Africa. Um, in 2000, yeah, I left there in 2004, so I was seven. Um, and as I just mentioned earlier, like, I, I quite like that because it means that when someone asks what's one interesting fact about you, you always have that one in your back pocket. <laughs> um, so, yeah, I, I, feel quite, I feel quite privileged, actually, to have been born there, to then have this. Because um, it's just a, it's a nice experience to have gone from Zimbabwe, which is actually the 139th poorest country in the world, hmm, to the wow. UK, um, which was the fifth richest
1: until Brexit and now we're the sixth richest. <laughs> the um, lesser, the better. Um, what are your memories your earliest memories about Zimbabwe what when you think of that place and, and your childhood what comes to mind
2: honestly this is this is the benefit of being under seven um, in <laughs> in a dictatorship because it's not not a, not a well set up country um, <laughs> at, at the moment um, and for me it's all good things to be honest um, but I think as I get older I become more aware of these things like uh, so occasionally on like a sunny afternoon dad would disappear for three hours um and it was go pick up pick up fuel um because of mm. fuel shortages or like bread or something and um I remember my parents taking me to church and afterwards we'd go to the shop and we all had to come in because there's only one loaf of bread per person including the baby um, Wow! so all of that stuff you don't really know as a kid it's kind of like a it's just a cool place it's where you live um but Probably felt realize, normal, actually, like oh god that's quite bad that actually um (laughs) but I was seven so it's all happy memories so it's all good for me I think
0: and so why is it that you were born in Zimbabwe
2: this is always actually difficult for me to even get my own head around but essentially like mum's mum was born in the UK um and then mum went out there dad was already there and so there's been a generation or two there um so my parents were born there um so yeah, just pretty much parents. I think a generation or two must have come over. And then, yeah, then we left in 2004
1: and now in the UK. You know, it's interesting, David, because both Leora and I are also immigrants to Canada. Um, mm. I, I immigrated from um, the Philippines and Leora, where did you immigrate from?
0: I immigrated from Israel. So we're kind of all over the world here.
1: I, isn't it interesting how I feel like our generation or at least to me, it seems like it's the generation of globalization Right? It's a generation of, of people who have left their homes for better futures. And we, we have another podcast about this, but it's just, I, I find it fascinating how um, many people that we talk to around our age range have similar stories in that regard. And I, I guess, David, my question to you is how has sort of you moving to the UK and, and that, you know, how, do, how has your history shaped what you're doing now? And can you tell us a little bit more about, you, you know, what you're doing today?
2: That is such a good question, um, and it's one that I've thought about a lot, actually. And this is why I feel actually very privileged to have had that experience, because I think when you come from a place, especially a low-opportunity place to a high-opportunity place, I sort of feel like I'm being given a, a golden ticket, to be honest. Um, it's very easy to dump on your own country, um, uh, <laughs> but then actually when I, when I think of, you know, the comparisons to other countries around the world um, and the, the, the life I could have been living, I'm like there's no way I could be doing what I'm doing now. Um, if I was still in Zimbabwe I would have been who knows like I would have finished school I'm not sure if university would have been an option um, I, I'm not sure I wouldn't have had the same opportunity so I think especially I think um, when you have being an immigrant somewhere you've just got so much more energy to move yourself forward and like move up in the world um, which you don't necessarily get if you were just born somewhere and this is just your home so I think it can actually be an advantage because it just makes you Um, 10 times more driven, I think, just inherently.
0: I think that's so fascinating because if I think about David, you immigrated when you were seven. Um, Phil, how old were you when you moved to Canada? I was five years old. (laughs) And for me, I think I was just under five, like I must have been four. And it's funny that even just those few years of your life are so monumental and just having an understanding of what it means to live somewhere else. And you mentioned drive, which I think is so true. Like, I think that, you know, this was in one of our previous podcasts where we say that, you know, for example, Phil and I also immigrated and we have this, um, like, almost this, we understand this privilege we have. And so we feel driven and excited to kind of contribute back to the community and do all these different things and take all these opportunities. And it's just funny to hear that, you know, you have that similar perspective. And again, you also immigrated relatively young as well so Mm. that's fascinating to kind of compare all our quite different stories but hear kind of this like underlying thread
2: I think it may be partly um at least for me because you appreciate the sacrifice of your parents absolutely yes like uprooting Mm. your entire life to move thousands of miles to another place um that that takes a lot and you I think when you see someone and then also when you arrive at the country um unless you've got a lot of help it is a lot of hard work to like get yourself just to the like median level Mm -hmm. Um, so I think it's partly seeing that just seeing someone model that behavior of if you move somewhere you can improve yourself but you have to work hard for it
0: absolutely and and it's it's so so true you know the idea that we Um, respect our parents so much for being able to do this in a time where I always joke like there was no Google you know Mm. we for I mean for our for myself my family didn't really speak the language when we moved there was no Google there was no Google Translate no Google Maps I can barely go to a different city without my Google Maps so it's just um, (laughs) incredible to think about you know what uh, our parents must have gone through to uproot their life for this hope of a better future
1: Mm. love that so David, what, what is your, what is your bitter future? Like wh- what have you, um, what, what are the goals that you want to, to accomplish and what are you doing right now that has, you know, made, as you say, you know, the sacrifice of your parents, uh, all that more sweeter. Cause I think we all, we're all doing stuff <laughs> in mm-hmm. that same regard. And, um, yeah, I'd love to just hear more about what you're doing right now.
2: Yes. I, I had the, like very interesting design, very interesting psychology, um, and linguistics language, all of that stuff. Um, Then I saw a TED Talk by Rory Sutherland. um, Mm -hmm. David,
1: for for our listeners, can you tell us who is Rory Sutherland and and why um, was it such a great TED Talk?
2: Well, he's the the vice chairman of Ogilvy Group. um, And really, he was spearheading this whole movement of um, behavioral economics, applied behavioral science, um, and just sort of bringing these worlds together, the design world, the psychology world, the business world, Um, in a way that other people hadn't um, because it really what I'm talking about is behavioral economics which is quite an academic field um, but really just bringing it into more practical ways to see that actually um, the greatest opportunities are psychological not technological uh, which is not my phrase this is his (laughs) Um, but I just love this talk of bringing these things together and so for me I think what we were talking about was um, what this meant from being in the UK versus somewhere else and for me it was like I got to first identify, identify passion, but then also like have the opportunities to work towards it. Um, and so, yeah, just like the books, the podcasts, meeting people. And it's pretty much been a five, six year journey, um, just gunning after this passion, but like, I wouldn't have had the opportunity to do that in another country, potentially Mm -hmm. It's, it's much harder to do these sort of pursue the things you really want to do with your life. Um, when you have to focus on like you know, Maslow's hierarchy, if you imagine the, the exactly. lower levels of that.
0: And I guess just to quickly take a step back, you know, we talk about behavioral science and behavioral economics. And just for our listeners, what does that mean in your own terms? So what is behavioral science?
2: So it's pretty much, um, it's another word for psychology, like how our brains work. And I suppose it's, it's helpful to take it back to what it really is. And this is looking at people's behavior, how they really act, not how they say they act. So mm. you may have someone say, oh, I'm not looking for relationship, not looking for anything yet. They're opening Tinder 23 times a day. <laughs> um, that is way more predictive of of what they're really thinking. Um, so, yeah, like looking at behavior, which I like because it's, it's countable. You can see it. And it's really just seeing how how things where my interest with this is, is like how things in the environment influence your behavior, because everything is having influence on your behavior. Um, and I'm just fascinated by that, how these smallest things can be just changing how you behave. So I guess to, to round the off, it's, it's just behavior. It's just how stuff affects your behavior.
1: Hmm. Great. And how do you use that? Like how, what, um, I'm, I'm so, first of all, I'm so curious about this because, you know, being a scientist, I love the phrase that you said, um, it's behavior, not technology. And I, I come from the technology world and I've always told people and friends, you know technology is almost the easiest thing. It either works or it doesn't work. You give it enough time, you get enough money, you can make it work. But if you wanna make an impact on the world on something like climate change, the harder things are you know, finance and, and policy because they rely on behavior, they rely on influence and relationships and reputation and world events that are outside of your control, soft and hard, above, below the organization, all of these sorts of things. So I, I, I just wanna know, like, how can you use this, this understanding and the science of behavioral psychology to impact change, what does that look like?
2: That's a good question. And I think it really goes back to the the fundamentals and it's it's understanding what's really going on um, in the situation. And like, I think there's, it's very much truth-seeking. I think paper scientists, like not what people say not what they think it's like, what's the truth of it? And it it sort of, it helps bridge the gap between intention and action because we know that people want to make these changes but we don't necessarily, we're not necessarily empathetic to why they can't make these changes, which may be because something is, um, like we talk about the combi model. So to get any behavior to happen, we need capability. First of all, um, people need to be able to do this behavior. Like, do they know how to do the behavior that we're asking them to do? Um, and then, so that's physical. Um, this was psych- psychological. Do they know it? But do they have the like energy to be doing this if, if you ask me to do something at 11:30 30 at night I don't have the physical capability to do it but then the aspect I think we focus on way too much is motivation which is hmm. what we think because we go to like oh let's educate people let's um let's tell them why this is a good thing but you're only hitting the motivation factors which is maybe traditional advertising is, is where you're hitting with that but then there's automatic motivation which is like what's subconsciously influencing your behavior and the last one is opportunity. Um, if you want someone to do a behavior, do they have the, the physical opportunity? Is there something in the environment which is actually making this really easy or really hard to do the behavior? If you're trying to stop smoking, but there's loads of um, other smokers around there, that's really difficult for you. If, if everyone in your office goes out for a smoke and you're the only one there um, sitting at the, at the table, um, that's, that's difficult. It's, it's really hard to tell people to, to change their behavior there. But also, if you just, if it's surrounded by ashtrays everywhere, which are just facilitating this behavior, mm. I think that's where it starts. It starts by understanding like, OK, what's really going on and being empathetic to why people aren't doing it, because you can ask people to do stuff, but they need the other things around them to be able to do these things. So I think it probably starts from a place of um, empathy um, to, to be honest, to begin with.
0: I love that you say that because I think empathy really is like to your point, like the the key to understanding how to drive change. I come from, you know, a number of years working in change management consulting and oftentimes I find you're just throwing, you know, plans and strategies and meetings when really the fundamentals that you need to think about when you're driving behavioral change is understanding behavior itself, which so, so many Mm. people just assume they don't need to do or it's too complex or we can just throw plans and people will just follow mindlessly and change behavior. So behavioral applications and science is just so crucial. And I'm seeing it become so much more popular, especially in the last few years of, um, you know, this field. So
1: I want to dive in a little bit on something that you said, which is on the government piece of it. Uh, a simpler tax form. This is hidden close to home because I just did my taxes. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I just use an I use an app. It was great it Took me 15 minutes. And I was I was done with my day. Um, when you think about taxes, or when you think about governments, when you think about these large institutions that have been around for a very long time, where they've been building concepts over concepts, um, amendments over amendments, how do you simplify something that's complex? How do you apply design and, and behavioral you know, science to try and streamline something which in, is almost inherently complicated? Is that even possible? I like to think it
2: is. Um, I think I think it's really, it is definitely hard because there's so many moving parts and stakeholders. So I think first of all, it's, it's probably helpful to take a systems view of this, like looking at the whole system, zooming out instead of focusing on just the, the thing, the component, um, which may be the tax form you think naturally that's where we should focus, but we may actually need to zoom out a little bit and find that it's actually something further upstream, which is maybe um, when you when you sign up to a business, um, is there some pre-filled tick box or is, are, there, are there other places where people are filling in the same information that we could just be like using that information better? Like I know that the censuses are going on around the world right now and the UK uses one, but other countries now are starting to not um, do a census because they can kind of patch together the data from another source hmm. but I think yeah I think zooming out would be one way but ultimately you want to like do a some sort of behavioral audit where you you find all the friction Where where's the pain happening in this so maybe like plotting if you ask scope for just a, a one piece of it just plot where's all the pain you know find hundreds of pain points across there like
1: mm-hmm.
2: whether it is, it's, it's socially difficult or whether it's like ambiguity in the process where there's like too many things. it's just too complicated. And like uh, one thing I've recently learned about is conditioning for complexity. Um, you, can, you can get people to complicated behavior but you have to start them with a simple behavior. And maybe it's just too much throwing an entire tax form at them to start with because it's just it's 50 things to do, 50 mm-hmm. things to think about, they can't handle it. So I think just to summarize that, it's probably zooming out and looking at the system and finding out where you should be intervening because things over here influence other things over there.
1: Mm-hmm, mm-hmm.
2: And then I think it's just a process of, of audit, like find every reason why people aren't doing it and then try design, try just to solve those things basically.
0: That's fascinating. It really kind of comes down to just understanding behaviors and problem solving for, for better design, which is so fascinating. Is that kind of the type of work that you're now doing day to day?
2: Yes, it is. Um, it is. And this is why It's why I'm, I'm really happy, to be honest, because it was a passion I identified and I worked really hard towards it. And I now work at my dream company, which is Ogilvy Consulting, Pay with science practice. It used to be called Ogilvy Change. Um, and I get thrown these challenges every day, like, have uh, to be careful, confidentially. But like one thing, for example, I'm working on is how do we design better design bread packaging to decrease food waste Um, Mm. is a really interesting challenge because it's it's just one piece of the puzzle like it won't solve the problem but food waste is so much worse than plastic and other things because Mm -hmm. if you think of like the lettuce you have that's um the plastic we get very upset about but actually fitting the lettuce is 15 times worse for co2 than the plastic so well, for this, it's like, how do we get people to like value the last slices? Because you've got so much excitement for your loaf of bread at the start. And then by the end, you're like, I don't really care. Um, <laughs> it's just, it's there, it's not as appealing. So like, how do you, what do you do with design to um to do that? Just trying to think, another, another client I've got right now um, is Meal Kits. And it's a really interesting, it's a set of behaviors because how, it's a subscription model. So like people, you're helping them cook, but then you train them to cook and then they could just drop your product if they want, because you can't- That happened to, to me. That, exa-
1: that exact that thing really. happened to me.
2: <laughs> we should talk because you, you'd be a good research study.
1: Absolutely. <laughs>
2: um, so a bunch of challenges. Um, yeah, so so many challenges to be honest.
0: Hmm. That's fascinating. And it, it's it's interesting to hear how there's so many applications and food waste being such you know an important world Um, I guess, tragedy that happens, there's so much food going to waste. And oftentimes, to your point, people think about, you know, the plastics or this or that, but not many people are speaking about the, you know, the, the behaviors behind it. How do we just kind of inherently change human behavior so people are thinking about it differently and in turn reducing food waste, which is so fascinating. And I guess this is maybe a good transition point to think about you know what's next in the field of behavioral science so we've talked about so many different things and you know how behavioral science has really come up in the last few years and you're working at Ogilvy which is a you know one of one of if not the best um you know behavioral science consulting firms and what are you seeing are kind of the trends of what's going to be coming up next in the field of behavioral science like what's what's next
2: that's a big question that um and I thought about it in the shower this morning actually. (laughs) And (laughs) I think there's there's a few things I think that are 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 happening. And one thing is it's really maturing as a field. I think um, at the start it was like this it's like rush towards it. And like I think I think maturing is is definitely one word where I think there's there's now more established places, and there's like codes of ethics, there's now more regulation in it, like there's now gaps, which I, I forget what the acronym is for, but they're basically Helping to like um, just keep us on track with this because we are influencing behavior here, and like any superpower, that can be used for good or for bad. So it's good mm-hmm. to have these code of ethics. I think it's it's not just um, run away because you can get some really unethical design out there, which no one wants. Um, it's even bad for business. Like if you're on a, a booking website like for for hotels and stuff, and there's just a million different call to actions, they're pressuring you to buy. And you don't know what you've done and you regret you've what you've done, like that's bad. You've you've influenced, you've understood people's psychology, and you've you've um you've manipulated them basically. You've you've not done it for a good reason. And they regret the behavior, which I think is a, a good test. I think that's one area is it's maturing, but I also think it's getting more creative because we've sort of done what you might call the low-hanging fruits, where you can just like make an extra million or a few billion on a tax form by saying most people do it by this date, because we know that by pointing to a social norm with social animals, um, baby is more likely to happen. And mm-hmm. we've, we've kind of done a lot of those things. And I think the whole nudge theory sphere of things is now quite embedded in a lot of different companies. Um, or at least most people know about it. So I think we're now forced to think more creatively. And I think another part of that is just being deeper, 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 it's now long, it's like you still have consultancies But I think it's also now just best practice for a lot of places. You know, how do we design things that people want to do them or that they can do them like they want to do them? And so I think potentially behavioral science is getting more, more a seat at the table. Uh, You now have like C-suite, you have a chief behavioral officer. Um, That's now a thing responsible for how do we do behavior because it's it's core to any sort of business. Um, But it's even just branding, I think is something I'm coming across a lot more, which is I'm, you know, where before I think consulting, you can have very small parts of the business where you're just solving one specific problem, like maybe the tax form or the, the sign-up form. But now it's like actually like I I led an ideation session the other day. And the first thing I did to start it is I ran everyone through the brand deck, well, the sort of the, the going through the, the soul of the brand, how we talk about the brand, the, the, the excitement, the tone of voice, all of that stuff. Because ultimately, we're so embedded in it. And it's not a, it's just, it's not enough to just be like, most people do this. Like if it's a fun, creative brand, are your interventions feeling fun and creative? Like mm-hmm. what may be really effective on the, in the behavioral science literature may not at all be on brand. So I think it's like slightly fluffier, a bit more sensibility to like, well, we can't just give a, a I don't know, a really functional message or a really um, effective message, but just doesn't really fit the tone. So I think it's, it's really maturing in a few different ways is is how I might say.
0: I, I agree with that. And, you know, when we think about maturity, one of the things you mentioned, which is ethics, which is something that I've seen become quite prominent in the field of behavioral science, right? Because all of a sudden there's arguments saying, well, if you truly understand kind of fundamental behavior, well, you can actually manipulate people like you mentioned with the hotel example. And so we're seeing a lot of, or I am kind of more literature and certificates in behavioral science and ethics applications to make sure what does it mean to be a good behavioral scientist? How do you make sure that you're actually helping someone or nudging them to do something that will benefit them in the future in a way that they want to be benefited in the future and not make assumptions that humans may or may not agree with. So I think that's exactly. a really interesting um, concept that I think will be very important as we get deeper and deeper into your point, more mature in the field of behavioral science. Mm-hmm.
1: You know, as an outsider looking into this and hearing you two speak about behavior science, like how it's a superpower, the thin line between manipulation and nudging, and that thin line really is just a definition of what's good, you know, what is what makes people feel good, what's good for society, and then I think, well, you know, who is to say, who is to define what is good? You know, Mm -hmm. what one person thinks is good may not necessarily be what another person thinks is good. What one person may think is designed that, that benefits all may not be what another person thinks. So the, the more that I listen to this, I think, wow, not only are, are we getting more mature and sophisticated in our understanding and our, our control of behavior, but what a world of opportunities this opens up. And, you know, with great power comes great responsibility so like that that in of myself i'm like i'm like war, like scared now I'm like oh my god every mm-hmm. ad that i read am i being behaviorally yeah. manipulated <laughs> yes See, this <laughs> oh, is the no. thing
2: like I, I i think about this a lot and when i was at uni sort of coming towards this i i did a big essay on this and i was like because i wanted to explore this and i wanted to talk to people in the field but like um that what you're doing here uh, not just how do you sleep at night but like <laughs> what's your justification like what's really? the because i i think it can be a, it can be amazing can be very powerful um but i think people can get a bit um bit funny about this so i really want to get to the bottom of like what is the ethics of influence and a few things i came across and the first one is um like there's no such thing as neutral design no matter what you do you're always going to be influencing behavior so the example i like to give um which comes from nudge is uh, the din lady um or the catering person um, however they lay out the food in the in the kitchen for in the canteen for all the school kids you're going to be influencing behavior if you put mm-hmm. muffins right to the front you're going to have more muffins picked that day if you put the carrots right to the front you're going to have more carrots picked um, and you can't no matter what you do you're going to do something mm-hmm, and mm-hmm. so i think this is where i think it really 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 pays to now understand behavioral science so like understand at least what are we doing are we are we doing something that we shouldn't be here? Or is this what we want to be doing? Do we want to be increasing muffin sales here? But I think you also raised a good point and that is on, on incentives um, and who's really, who's really winning here. And I think that's where there's also more maturity. And I really like the, the definition that Nir Eyal gives. I think I might be saying his name wrong, he wrote the book, Hooked, um, how to build habit forming products. And then he wrote another book called Indistractable, essentially showing you know, what's the an antidote to this. Um, he talks about the regret test and would your users regret doing this behavior? I think is quite a, a good one because like I mentioned with the gym app, I don't mind you pinging me at the right moment for me to do something and it becomes a habit. And I do not regret that, but I would regret if you lead me down a really confusing click hole where I don't know how to get out and I end up paying I, for something I didn't want, or I get stuck in a subscription, like, yeah. like calling up, having a canceling subscription, having to call up a company, find out their number, They're only open between nine and five in their time zone. Like, I and that's borderline- on the
0: idea of sludge, which is something yes, that's uh, exactly. up and coming, right? The idea of, it's almost like the opposite of the nudge. So, you know, the, the amount of time it takes to like almost get someone to do something that's gonna be so much longer than it inherently should in order to deter you from doing that behavior. So David talked exactly. about a subscription model And if it's, you know, you have to call someone, then do something. And, you know, there's so many steps to it. Someone inherently might not want to go through it. Um, Mm. The idea of sludge. I think it's,
2: I think that's, it's borderline unethical. I think that's, Mm -hmm. it shouldn't Mm -hmm. be like, you're just making it so hard for people to do it. Which is another thing that I I really just pours my blood is like, you're literally, I want to give you money. There's companies I want to give money to because you have a good product, but you make it so hard for me. And like, nobody's winning there. So I think there's, there's definitely, there's opportunities for both, but I think it's definitely one, one to consider. And I think where I ultimately sit with this is, are we happy with the ends that we're achieving? I think the means I'm less worried about, like say I'm comfortable with increasing Coca-Cola consumption in Africa by 3%, which is going to be really bad for obesity. It's going to be bad Mm -hmm. for this, 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 like, if, but if you're, if you're comfortable with the end goal, whether you did it by. Some advertising campaign which just had a big big red poster and it had the word coke on it or you did it by doing something really fancy where you like i don't know you did some social norming you um you did some fancy language design like you did some priming you made certain rooms red so people thought of coca-cola or like whatever Hmm. like um how you achieve that is not so much the issue i have it's like are we happy with the what we're actually doing in the end like mm, the proper mm-hmm. ends of this is what i think i'm more worried about um than how we actually get there
0: and that kind of touches on you know with great power comes great responsibility you know and and we'll never be able to kind of control all of it but how do we kind of each play our role in making sure that the end is indeed something that um is kind of for the greater good This week, we talked with David Fanner about his journey towards becoming the behavioral scientist he is today.
1: We talked about how having the unique experience of living in Zimbabwe for the first few years of his life have provided him with a strong appreciation for the life he lives now in the UK. We also talked about how people focus too much on the motivation when looking to change behavior, when we should really be thinking about the social cues that people are exposed to that truly drive behavioral change.
0: Our what's next in was as behavior science has matured as a field, it has become critical to understand the ability to alter human behavior and its deep ethical challenges. And how applying changes in how humans make decisions has consequences. And it's up to us as a society to recognize right from wrong.
1: What do you think is what's next in the way your decisions will be influenced?